0: So um, I sat here in this studio around nine nine months ago, September 2021. I was on my book tour for uh, Scary Smart, and most of you know that Scary Smart is very dear to my heart. It was an instruction from my son to write that message. So it was basically the last book I wrote as an instruction from my Ali. So I had it, I took it very seriously. I, I had a, a very, very grueling book tour, part of it, was 10 days that i spent in london and in eight of those days i recorded 21 podcasts the last of them interestingly was here in this studio i was uh, sitting uh, in the other side uh, the boss was sitting here the host of the of the podcast So today i'm in his studio uh, thank you so much for that and i'm the boss <laughs> because i'd love to have him tell you a little bit about uh, what he knows about life. But let me just tell you, I had no idea who I was meeting. I came here because my calendar said you have a podcast to record. I was completely exhausted. And so I spoke from the heart. And uh, the host uh, was not just another podcast host. He was Uh, a no-nonsense kind of guy. He looked for wisdom, and he looked for depth, and he didn't want fluff. I mean, I normally don't try fluff, but uh, he just insisted to get to the truth, which created a conversation that ended up being probably one of the best conversations I've ever had in my life. I walked out of here not knowing what had happened. We spoke for a couple of hours almost, and then it turned out that this was the diary of the CEO which is one of the furthest reaching uh, podcasts in the world. And um, to top it all up, the host, Stephen Bartlett, started his introduction and told his followers, millions of followers on social media, that this was his favorite podcast episode ever, which is extremely generous. And uh, as a result, we ended up reaching millions and millions and just... The messages kept coming in. I watched your conversation with Stephen and it changed my life and that point and this point. And interestingly, Stephen insisted that we don't talk about uh, Scary Smart until the very end. But hey, I was sitting there saying, fine, you know, it's my last podcast, so we're fine. And we spoke about life and love and happiness. And it was an amazing conversation. If you haven't heard it, you absolutely have to hear it. I then went out and did my homework. Finally, I should have done it before, but I did my homework finally and got introduced to who Stephen really is. Stephen is a college dropout, but he started Social Chain when he was 21, which made him, by age 26, I think, one of the richest men in the UK under 30. It was one of the most impactful, influential social media companies in uh, history. Uh, valued at $600 million. And uh, he turned out to be one of the dragons on Dragon Den, uh, the BBC show, which um, I wasn't aware of, but when people started to tell me, they always say he's their favorite dragon. He turned out to be an author of this, which I will say openly, without hesitation, is my absolute second best book in (laughs) history. And the only reason why it's second is because my best, my favorite book in history was recommended heavily to me by my son Ali. And it's very, a very personal story that touched on something between us. If you want to know what that is, find me on social media and ask me. But this is incredible. This is truly, truly an unbelievable uh, summary of wisdom in a way that a young person would write it which I think is what the world needs. I have never in my life seen wisdom so concisely summarized in so few words. Chapters are sometimes just a few pages and you go like, what? I would have taken 25 pages to write what he wrote in three. And for that, Stephen, I have to say you're one of my favorite people on the planet. I Um, I will tell the whole world today, I love you so much. No one has ever, as one person, moved my mission forward as much as you did. Uh, With your generosity, with your intellect, with your search for truth and wisdom, we've made millions of people happy together. And for that, I am eternally grateful. So for you listening, uh, this will be one of uh, your favorite conversations ever on slow mo. I'm no, I'm absolutely certain it will be one of my favorite conversations ever because I have a million and a half questions for you. So Stephen Bartlett, first of all, thank you, thank you for the studio, thank you for being here, and thank you for what you did.
1: Thank you. I um, I have to. It's funny because I have a very similar experience from our conversation, but obviously from the other perspective, which was. You know, after having that conversation with you, I reflected on it. Not only did I change so many things in my life personally, and I've gone all around the world on every stage. When people ask me in every interview, whether I'm walking a red carpet or I'm doing someone else's podcast, which my favorite guest was, my brain always comes back to some central lessons that you taught me. So I've always answered since that day that our conversation was my my favorite because it's almost like a psychedelic experience when one core belief that you had becomes dissolved and then rebuilt. And that that fundamental belief that might have been holding me back in some way is so profound and so far reaching in every area of my life. So, and those are lessons, the sort of simple lessons about happiness and expectation management and why we are happy and unhappy, all of those foundational things were so pivotal for me that they changed my life. And it's funny because when that conversation we had came out, the reaction I saw was like nothing I've ever seen since. From grown men who are big celebrities telling me that they were crying in the gym to 16 year old girls on the other side of the world telling me that it had liberated them from something that had been holding them back. And I'd just never seen that before. And it's funny cause I, I, I obviously have to promote the podcast. I have to sit here and say that they, you know, well I don't have to, but I, but I do. I say, you know, I, I try and highlight the positivity in them. But in that episode, I just simply said that this is my favorite ever. And I said that before anyone had listened. And it's transpired that that was the way it was received. The algorithms we talked about algorithms in AI, the algorithms agreed, and it's funny because <laughs> the episode came out, it got to you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands, millions of views, and then the algorithm, for some reason, and I looked at the back end of the data, said, "We're going to show this to millions more people," and it just took off again, and it's so it's so funny that truth, honesty, wisdom are still in such great demand in the world. But I have to say. I didn't do any of that stuff. I am a guy who sits here with all of my guests and, and approaches them with the same level of curiosity and search for depth and meaning and truth and honesty. And they give me different things. And what you gave me that day in that conversation was just deeply important.
0: And that's why it's done so well. So you have yourself to thank. Um, I think we can debate that. We okay. someti- We sometimes believe, I think you and I, and people like us who, work hard, right? We, we put our mind to something and we get it done. We think that we do things. I found in my later parts of life that sometimes we don't do much at all. Sometimes, sometimes things are done through us. And I feel that when we, you and I met, it was quite a bit of serendipity, interestingly. It was like, okay, you know what? In my personal view, I think I think that at that moment I was almost ready after years of telling people about this, and you were looking for something, and that serendipity somehow took us very far. But anyway, thank you either way. Now I, I wanna ask you a, a very important question before we start doing talking about anything, because I don't get it. I, I you know, I, I worked in Silicon Valley for a long time and I know lots of millionaires and billionaires and successful entrepreneurs, and none of them does what you do at all right? So most successful entrepreneurs that build a startup and sell it either end up building another startup or end up buying a place in south of France and disappearing from the world. Nobody goes and builds a podcast and writes a book and you're doing your tour now. Why? Why do you do what you How do you choose what next year for Stephen is going to look like? So I think we will have
1: tons of signals in our life and tons of forces which are sometimes conflicting and they are acting as like a satellite navigation of where we should be going and what we should be doing and some of those forces are external some of them are driven by insecurities by social expectation but one of those signals that we all have all of us is how we feel it's a very simple signal but it tends to be the case as i've come to learn that that signal is like deprioritized In the context of other signals, which is like social expectation, what my mother wants me to do, what society wants me to do to be considered a success. I think at some point the signal of how I feel, maybe because of the absence of my parents, maybe because there was a, the other forces, the other signals, which are sometimes really, really strong in people, wasn't there. I've always, for some reason... I think it was because of the absence of my parents. I think they didn't put a lot of pressure on me because they were so busy. That signal tended to win out from a young age. So when I didn't like school, for example, I would just not go. And the consequences (laughs) of that choice were not there. They were for my brothers and sisters. But by the time I was of age, by the time I was a young child, my parents' life dynamic had changed. So they were always working. So I'm this young kid at home who's literally waking up in the morning, my parents aren't there, going to sleep at night, my parents aren't there. There's no money being left on the kitchen counter for packed lunches. There's no presents under the tree at Christmas. I had this like real immense freedom. So my feeling, how I felt every day was, became a really strong guiding principle or guiding signal. And that's kind of, I look at my life and I think that's, that's continued. I went to university. I went for one day, didn't like it. People were asleep on the desks. They didn't want to learn business. I did. I never went back. My, my first startup, the same thing happened. The day that it became, I think, I'd say a couple of weeks in a row, it became really unpleasant. And the signal in me was like, you don't like this anymore. I quit out the blue, even though I had investors in a team. Glass of wine, I quit. I then built a company that had, now has more than 1,000 employees, generating this year about 650 million in revenue. And during the pandemic, I was sat in Portugal and multiple weeks had passed in a row where I didn't enjoy it anymore. And I quit out the blue. 10 days before we were meant to go, we were booked to go on a fundraise to raise 40 million. I dropped out and I was the fundraiser and I quit. And they said, no, you can't. And I said, yeah, I can. And I quit. And I, So I think when I reflect on my life about how, the prism in which I've made my decisions, there's been this ongoing battle with insecurity, which was also present in my childhood. The only black kid in an all white school. Our street, if you had gone Google maps and put in my address today, you will see this perfect street full of all white people. And then this one house in the middle, which is completely battered, which has the front window on my brother's bedroom, Jason, smashed for 15 years. The grass is at the front of the house, about three or four feet high. At the back, it's about six or eight feet high. The back of our house is knocked down. If you look in the conservatory, you'll see that it looks like a hoarder lives there because we we lived like hoarders. Like there was some rooms in my house, at the back of my house, where you couldn't go in because they were packed to the ceiling with junk from Africa for, you know... So I lived in the, and we attribute value of ourselves through the context in which we see ourselves. So the context in which I saw myself, as I talk about in the book, is I was the Nokia in a world full of iPhones. I thought I was inferior. I grew up with that inferiority complex. So that that was always a force in my life, which sometimes nearly risked me buying a Lamborghini to try and validate myself in the eyes of society. But generally the most powerful force is, how do I feel in the situation? And in the short term, that's a really dangerous signal to be guided by. It seems. But in it the does. long term, being guided by how you feel is, I think, the path to fulfillment and outsized success. Because you end up doing things you really enjoy. Then you end up becoming a master in those things. Then the world returns huge value for the fact that you became a master in something. And generally in my life, I'm like really happy. And I've never really understood why. I've never really understood why, but I think it's because I've had, I've been driven by that signal. So at 29 years old, I find myself living a, ha- a life on my terms, being really financially free, having a wonderful relationship with a wonderful woman and having constructed a life that I really love.
0: Mm. But isn't that dangerous? I mean, I actually completely understand that, by the way. I think it was documented beautifully in Blink, if you remember Malcolm Gladwell's, the approach of us having shut down our intuition completely and that those who actually open up to their intuition and to how they feel, and surrender to the fact that we enjoy some things more than others, those go further in life. I know that for certain. But that's a very dangerous advice for someone listening, because I can guarantee you some people who are doing this in their lunch break might go like, okay, time to leave, right? So what's the criteria to regulate that a little to give it a bit of time?
1: It's an interesting thing, because I was that person on my lunch break in Manchester (laughs) when I worked 10 different call centre jobs, probably more than 10, but I could probably name 10 call centre jobs I worked, who would go on his lunch break, who would get up and go. I remember working at Swinton's Car Insurance on Portland Street in Manchester, and I remember my birthday was coming up, and I wanted to spend my birthday working on my startup and seeing my friend, and they were like, you can't because you booked in, and I never came back. And I remember doing that over and over again. I was aggressively guided by how I felt. And I said to you, it's dangerous in the short term. Where did that leave me? When I dropped out of university, after not paying any of my halls of residence fees because I dropped out too quickly to get the student yeah. loan, the bailiff letters started stacking up. I moved to Mosside in Manchester. I started shoplifting pizzas because my parents... So this is all the harm I did in the short term. When I dropped out, my parents stopped speaking to me for about two years. They didn't send me my student loan because you have to stay in university to get your student loan, it, it turns out. And I had no other form of income. I also, because I had no form of income, I got two CCJs and all my credit card companies wouldn't touch me. Even till I was a multimillionaire, they wouldn't go near me. <laughs> I did so much damage by being that ruthless. But that's why I say when you zoom out, it works out. There is a middle ground. There is a case for practicality with, your, with being guided by your intuition and how you feel. I didn't have that. I was, maybe because I'd always lived without money. I wasn't scared of living without money and and i wasn't scared of discomfort either and there's this is like if if i am to have any skill in my life if people are to say you know how did he how did he do that all that all of that at a young age it's because of that aggressive timeline it's because i wasn't practical it's because i was willing to go and live in moss side and steal chicago town pizzas and suffer and wake up every day looking literally in search of change that people had left behind. The amount of days I can vividly remember searching for change. That was my mission that day. Find £1.20 so I can go to Young Dars and get the chips and curry sauce that I loved from across the street. I was ruthless with my timeline and um, I don't advise it. I can't advise it for someone else because I don't know what your resilience tolerance is. So I don't know if you'd break under those circumstances. I can only tell you honestly what I did. And then I think it's up to you to, to understand like what your subjective definition of happiness is, what your sort of risk and resilience tolerance is and what actually matters to you. Because in your life, you might want to be a school teacher and that's a perfect, that's an equally noble cause. You might want to be, you might want to clean toilets for a living. That's an equally noble cause. I wanted through trauma or whatever it was, I wanted to be free and to be rich and to be successful and to build great things and to reach my potential in those departments. And that's what I still want. But I, yeah, I just can't, I can't tell you how to do it for yourself, unfortunately, because I don't know who you
0: are. So I I actually am, I'm uh, daring enough to say it's a very good idea, honestly. I mean, the fact of life is that all of us go through harshness somehow. And for most of us, it doesn't end up being homeless. Yeah, it's going to be, you're going to suffer some discomfort, but it's discomfort is good for you. Was it really that bad? I mean, when you write in Happy Sexy Millionaire, you sometimes <laughs> sort of go back to those times and make them feel very romantic, sort of, very fulfilling somehow.
1: Yeah, so this is a, it's a really good question because in the moment, it wasn't bad mm. at all. It absolutely wasn't bad. It was the most, one. Of, I've always said I was as happy then as I am now. And I just mean every word of that. Mm. I actually feel like the same kid as I was there now. My external environment has changed. If I get out of the car, like I did last night, people will come up to me on the street instantaneously. All of that stuff's changed, but none of that actually matters. What mattered then and what matters now is I was pursuing myself and that's it. And it, the, circum- the external circumstances were part of that, part of the challenge. And as we all know, if there's no challenge, there's no fulfillment. I... I reflect on the first entry in my diary back then and I look through the pages of my diary because I kept this online diary every day and I was so excited about life. I, and The other thing was, I was so sure that this wasn't my destination. And I reflect on that and go, if I thought living in that house, so if I go a, a year into that journey, when I'm I'm living in this room, there's rats and mice in this room, I can tell because stuff's chewed every time I come back in after a couple of days. There's no bedding on this bed, this single bed in this corner. And the landlord is moving me from one property to the next whenever he rents out the property. So I never knew I was going to live next. But I was taking photos of my environment and my situation as if to document it for a future movie. Mm. And and I, you see that in my diary, in, the first, in the, one of the first pages of my diary, which I've shown on stage many times. I write in the diary, which is a total lie. I write that a, a production company have asked me to record this journey because they are going to make something like a film or something about it one day. Mm -hmm. No one had asked me that. I just didn't know how to write in my diary that that's why I was doing it. So I lied to my own diary. But in that you find something, in that lesson, you find why AI made it out and why it felt like fun was because it was, in my perception, it was a stepping stone to where I was going. And optimism, the belief that you will make it is not only conducive with actually making it, but it, it it stops you from, from falling into the trap of thinking that your, your reality or where you are now is your destination. And honestly, for me, this was just part of the story. And I knew I was writing the story. People say that people, you know, they look in the mirror and they say they've got self-belief or whatever, but that is self-belief. Mm. Where you're documenting your own suffering because you know that in 10 years time, it's going to form part of a inspirational story. Do you know what I mean?
0: i don't (laughs) i i I don't know honestly very very few people do i mean the reality is so i've been privileged i wasn't the richest person growing up but you know i didn't have to find coins okay Mm -hmm. on the other hand i definitely definitely have missed out on that freedom of just following my heart whenever i wanted to i married my college sweetheart when we were 24. I love her dearly still until today. And so you get that little pruny little child called Ali and you go like, okay, that's it. Not my choices anymore. But I tell you in my, in my older age now, I'm exactly where you are. It's like, if my heart feels something, then there is a message there. There needs to be something that's understood there. Okay. So I, I started stalking you seriously. So I, you know, I do this walk every day. When I used to be in Dubai, I would walk on the Palm Island for two hours every evening alone, either listen to something or just reflect. And I started listening to your book, which you read very fast, by the Uh. way. (laughs) Uh, For me, for me. And, and then I started stalking you. Okay. Like literally, I'm a fanboy, Okay. And here's what I describe you to be most different than anyone I know in you are ruthless with your ego ruthless like i have never seen someone so open about it like oh i'm doing this because of that insecurity or i did that because of this ego how do you become that like this is actually quite a skill do you know what it is i think there's a certain place of self-security
1: i got to generally where i don't care as much as I used to about what people think about me. So that that liberates you from trying to keep up a identity of perfection amongst the listener or amongst people you meet. If I overly, overly cared about your opinion of me, I would be wearing a Rolex right now and I wouldn't be talking about insecurities and my weaknesses and my flaws. That was old Steve. Old Steve, if you scroll down my Instagram before I archived all of these pictures, was posting photos of like women, champagne, fast cars louis vuitton pictures that he didn't even buy he was just finding them on the the hashtag and then posting them that was an insecure guy that was cared much more about um, what you thought of him than what he really thought of himself that was my mission in life was to get people to think i was impressive rich successful because clearly at some point in my journey all that stuff had invalidated me. And I always say, that as adults, we seek validation from the things that invalidated us when we were younger. And I was that kid that never had stuff, didn't have the nice things, couldn't bring people back to my house because it was so destroyed. So in my early adulthood, that was my mission, was to become a happy, sexy millionaire in the eyes of the world. I tried that and it failed me. And it was empty. Yeah. And the thing that made me, after trying it, trying it and it failing me, I realized that, I had been the one that had convinced myself I wasn't enough. So really, I was going to have to be the one to realize that I always was. And that really this like, and I talk about it in the last chapter of the book, which was super interesting. I love that chapter. I'd never, I'd never figured it out until I started writing that chapter. My sense that I was enough was just this sort of external measurement. And I, and it was a woman that I met one day who said to me, she said, imagine if you're already enough. She said it to our our company. She came into social change. She said, imagine if you were already enough and you've already accomplished all the goals and you have all the things you already need. And there was something in me that hated it when she said that, that wanted to fight against it Mm. and didn't accept it when she said it. Mm. But the feeling of terror that my mind gave me when I heard her say, I'm already enough, I found really curious. Why am I scared that I might be enough? Very good question. Yeah, and it's because I'd, I'd built my life on this belief that the only way to, to get happiness or to get there was by attaining more. But, you know, the more I read and the more I saw people who were exactly who I wanted to be and I observed how miserable they were, I realized more and more that I'd been lied to. And I'd, There's some pivotal moments, for example, when someone came and asked to buy our company for roughly about 50 million at the time. And I played that out in my head. Okay, I sell the company. My bank account is now this. I then go and buy this this and this. And I literally went on the websites to look at the things I was going to buy. <laughs> and I got to feel it. And it was this really bizarre, confusing, unexpected sense of emptiness. Looking oh, that's at this Lamborghini. So well said. Do you know what I mean? It was Oh, a, I totally do. Yeah. Anticlimactic, bizarre, confusing sense of emptiness looking at this Lamborghini being like and like playing out the reality of the of that life being like I'll get a mansion. But that'll be an arrow out of town, which separates me from my friends. Oh, gosh, that's a bad idea. Okay, don't, don't get the mansion. And if I get the Lamborghini, then what am I going to do after the Lamborghini? Because, oh, okay, that's a bad idea. And I'm like, so what are you doing all of this for, Steve? 18 year old, you told you you were doing this for the Lambo in the mansion. So what? And then I went through that six months of confusion, met a guy who had everything I always thought I wanted, went to his house, and, and he was one of the most unbelievable. He was the only one in the house other than his security guards. Big house, Louis Vuitton room. He was the only one in that house, in that mansion on that hill. And he was miserable. I thought, I don't want to be this guy. And it's funny, he took me downstairs and he said some things to me. He said, you know, Steve, sometimes I I take myself to a supermarket and I push the trolley around the supermarket and I pretend I'm going to buy stuff just to feel what it's like to be normal. And he goes, I went over my best friend's house, Steve, and they just sit around uh, with their family and they just drink a cup of tea. And he goes, I was really jealous of that. And I remember thinking, I need to stop in my tracks and turn back because the guy, you, he is who I,
0: I was going to become. Absolutely. And he is misery. Misery itself. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure you get the same question. I frequently get that question as well, even though most of my money I gave away, but people will say, ah, oh, you can say that because you made it. How, how do you convince someone who hasn't made it yet?
1: Maybe they're right. <laughs> Maybe, they're right. That. Yeah. Maybe they're right. I Maybe they're think, right. I I think there's something there's something quite important in understanding the perspective that your own privilege or the mountaintop can give you. And you get to see something else from the mountaintop. And so I do, there's always this sense of, I wouldn't say guilt, but there's always this sense of, I don't know. I always feel like I need to caveat when I give advice about money and happiness and all these things, because it's very easy to say from from privilege. Mm. And I'm not sure I always entirely understand my bias because I'll ask myself this question, would I go back? to living in Side and stealing those pizzas and searching for pound coins? I mean, I could, but I'm not. So this is clearly a better life. I'm clearly, I prefer these problems, the problems I have now than those problems. And I I remember Naval, who's one of the the great sort of thinkers and thinkers on social media, said one day that we can't expect people in deprived countries to take on the responsibility of caring about the environment until they have enough money to feed their kids. Mm. It's a very privileged way to to assert that they should be living their lives. So we can't expect people in India who are, um, who I witnessed, who are going through rubbish to try and find a little bit of wire so they can sell that piece of wire in a TV that they they tore apart in a junkyard back to the city so that they can buy food. We can't expect those people, we can't say to them, don't use single-use plastics. They have to at least get to a certain point in their own lives where they can start worrying about that next set of problems. So I, I pause on my privilege there, but what I will say is you already know, like life will indicate to you the things that give you the greatest sense of fulfillment. It can be that conversation with your family member. It can be hanging out with your friends. There's this other lie which we're all exposed to, which comes from social media and these screens and these billboards and TVs that promises you something you've never actually experienced. It will say that if you get that Lamborghini or that Louis Vuitton bag, you'll be happy and fulfilled. It's telling you that lie in the hope you'll believe it, but you have a ton of evidence already. The pandemic was one of the biggest moments in my life where everything was stripped back. All of the material possessions were stripped back and life said to me, what actually matters now? What are the things that give you fulfillment? And that was pivotal to me. That's when I started working out all the time. I started connecting more with my friends and we made some rules with our friends because I learned how important connection was and how unimportant it was to be flying around the world, going to meetings all the time. Hmm. But it's just a case of tuning into that inside voice and tuning out of that external voice, which has never, which is making you promises without evidence.
0: Yeah. Uh, let me just follow this w- with a very specific question mm-hmm. What is money to you? You make a lot of it. I do too. Yeah. What is it?
1: It's become freedom of choice. The best way I can describe it, it's freedom of choice. And the more money that I've been able to have, the the more choice, more choices I can make about myself, those around me and the world. So even doing this podcast costs a lot of money. And if I didn't have the £40,000 we spent to start it and to buy this equipment, I wouldn't have been able to do it like this. Then I wouldn't have been able to have conversations with people like you. My show cost me about £600,000, like, up front to do. The money is recouped. We break maybe break even. We give any profits to charity that we've made. But having the choice to be able to do that and to share that message with the world is a consequence of money. That's the only way I look at my money now. I'm not in shops buying anything, because none of it does anything for me. But this, my show, doing things with my team, we all just went to LA for about three three or four weeks and we did a podcast there. Those are the things where money has significance in my life at this stage, after my Maslowian needs are of course met, mm.
0: which again is a, an acknowledgement of my own privilege. What is it to you? I was going to stay silent and have you think further. Money uh, to me is the biggest illusion, honestly because all, all that you've actually described, and I don't mean to disagree with no, you, actually, you're the still. guest, yeah. all that you've described could be done with the abundance of other people's money. I think the reason why you're capable to, of doing what you're doing is because of how intelligent you are, how committed you are, how passionate you are about what you do, and money is maybe the fourth or fifth ingredient. And interestingly, in a world of business where you and I have raised money before and started businesses, yeah i believe that if you or i went to someone and said we're going to start a podcast they'll probably say how much do you need what can i get out of it but that's not the thing the thing i look at is money on the other side of it money for me is quite an interesting illusion because i'll say this openly i told you when we we spoke last time i had so many cars and i'm an engineer i made cars with my own hands i love cars right And I still today, I don't, I own one car, an Ali's car. And I still today look at cars and I go like, oh my God, I should buy one of those, (sighs) okay? Almost every other hour of every day, (laughs) right? And it's quite weird because in an interesting way, I know I don't want to. In an interesting way, I know it's not gonna make me happy. In an interesting way, I know that the car I keep, a 2004 model is my absolute favorite car ever made. So why am I going through all of that, right? And it's quite an illusion. And it's an an illusion to me is a challenge. It's like something that you need to solve, right? Something that you need to do something about. Never really figured it out. I wrote a few chapters on the topic, but never really figured it out. Why do we want it so much?
1: I mean, in that case, is it conceivable that there is still two narratives going on at all times in us? And one of those narratives is from me, because I do the same thing. You know, I've said that a few times that I will still have moments where I will convince myself that I want to buy a Rolls Royce. Yeah. and I will go on and I'll pick the colours. Crappy cars, really. I yeah. mean, honestly, I, I mean, do Apologies to Rolls Royce, yeah. but
0: they're not much better than BMWs or any other cars.
1: Where am I going to park it? I have a driver. <laughs> Where am I going to? I don't know. I'm not going to drive. I don't have a driving license. Mm-hmm. I'll convince you don't myself, have a driving. Not license. right now. I don't know. Right. Interesting. No, I, I go online. I'll look at a Rolls Royce. I'll convince myself I want to buy it, and then I'll send it to my team. And they go, "What are you going to do that for?" I go, "Yeah, sorry." I'll just drop <laughs> it. But so I asked myself, what that was? It's that narrative still exists in us. That narrative that. Those things will make me happy. My childhood traumas still have some force on me. But there is a counter-narrative, which fortunately is stronger. And it's just a scales. And all of our people think that once they realise something, they attain a piece of wisdom from listening to us talking, it will kill the other narrative. No, it's just like scales. It just adds a little bit more force to one side of it. So there's always going to be an ongoing battle. I think that's important because if you don't realise that your belief system is a contradiction and that there are always usually two forces in every belief you have, then you can be surprised. Mm. So I'm well aware that all of my insecurities, as they relate to my relationships, my money habits, and other parts of my psychology and insecurities are still there. I only hope that there is something stronger. And that awareness allows me to win that battle even more because I go, ah, I know what that is. Mm. Usually the moments when I want to buy Rolls Royce, I can kind of analyze the emotions around that moment and find what the trigger was that made me feel like I wanted to go buy something to show off. What would be a typical trigger? Might go on Instagram and see someone else has it and be like, oh gosh, I need to make sure the world knows I'm richer than them. You know what I mean? It might be that kind of thing. And then you go, well, that's ridiculous. And fortunately that, that force in me is so unbelievably weak these days that when you look at my life and my decisions, they are usually in line with my values and what I actually... Care about, but it doesn't. It doesn't stop the voice. And I actually don't care about that. I'm not trying to get to a point where I don't have any counter voices or counter narratives, or I'm completely ridden of triggers and trauma.
0: I, it's, it's okay. So that is why I absolutely loved this book. Okay, because most most authors, most celebrities, most successful people will make it look like they're larger than life. Yeah. Okay. My message to the world openly is: we're all full of holes. You know, we're we're completely. Most of us are completely messed up and lost, right? That life is so complex at multiple layers that yes, you ascend and you go to a certain point and then you go like, okay, okay, I figured something out that I didn't know when I was 20, but I still have so much more to figure out. And most people looking from the outside in, they go, Like, oh no, you know, Steven has it perfect. You know, everything, he's always so well-dressed, he's, you know, fit and athletic, he speaks so well, he's successful, rich and famous. But it seems to me that you're in, you're going through that constant search. You're like constantly looking at you and saying, no, more work to go, more things to improve. 100%.
1: I mean, in every aspect of everything I do, I'm so far from anything that would resemble even great, I think. So I was going to say perfect, but I'm I'm a million miles from, back. and perfect is completely unattainable, but I'm, I'm not even close to great on most things that I want to be great at. And it's this ongoing battle of like, do my best today, analyze why I fell short of my best, try and do my best tomorrow. And this podcast has been a really unbelievable aid in that because I get to meet people like you and they get to add a little bit more belief and evidence to one side of that scale. Mm. And hopefully- If I can even make a marginal gain on those things I care about, which could be how I treat people, how I approach my work, how I approach my relationships, how I approach my fitness and my health. If I can even make a 1% marginal gain from a conversation I have, then that for me is success because success to me in those situations is progress. Mm. And that's all I care about. I think there's something really liberating and wonderful and anxiety dissolving about just saying to yourself every day, today I'm going to try and be my best Mm. and At the end of the day, I don't metaphorically mean at the end of the day, but just at the end of the day, leave that day, whatever happened in that day, if you fell short of it, it's gone now. You you have no control over those decisions you made, but you wake up the next day and go, I'm gonna try again and be my best. I genuinely think that for me is the cause of my success, is this general unattachment I have to the future and the past, just this real, like, I wanna do the best I can in this conversation with you. And I might not, I might walk away from this conversation and go, I could have done better but I don't care. It's gone now. I will try and then make the next thing I do the best. And I don't wallow in regret or distress about the mistakes I made or whatever. And that was the same with my business. You know, in business, and when, the thing that stops people starting in business or pursuing their passions or their goals is this belief, this like, they're imprisoned by this false sense of a need for perfection. Like I need to have all the information, a mentor, the funding and the perfect timing. None of these things exist. Mm. The perfect timing is the biggest illusion of them all, right? So, because there's never will be a perfect time. So you have to pick an unperfect time. And then that, that cripples them into procrastination where they make no decision. For Steve Butler, 18 years old, who knew nothing, including what the word entrepreneur was, there was a challenge I wanted to solve in the world. And I opened up my computer, opened up PowerPoint, and started trying to design a website on PowerPoint just by using the little boxes and circles they give you. Mm. And I did that for months. And then, okay, someone said, you need, I'm gonna need money because I'm gonna need someone to build this. I went on Google every day and just tried my best to find an investor. Send email, send LinkedIn message. A very, very simple way to approach life. If you approach it as I need to climb Mount Everest, procrastination you'll never do it you'll be plagued by fear and evidence of your own inadequacy if you think i just need to move this pebble today and then i'll wake up tomorrow and move one more pebble and then i'll do one more step things become a much more attainable and and that's what i i think my mind has always defaulted to which is the way to climb everest is just one small step at a time and sometimes one imperfect step at a time
0: Mm. And sometimes you may even step
1: down a little bit. Oh, and, you might and, fall back down and that's yeah. okay. That's yeah. life. You might go up the yeah. wrong way mm. and you might have to turn around. But um, that for me is is central to, I see it so much in people. And it's actually watching the reason why people don't chase their goals and their dreams that made me realize that in me, which was, I, I've never seemed to care so much other than about like, what can I do today? And
0: how can I do it at my best? Mm. I think that's the absolute best path through life. One thing that blew me, blew me away was your chapter when you spoke about you don't have to be even perfect at any of the things that you do. Yeah. On the mathematics of that, like, are solid. Mm. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, well, I, like, I'm considered to be a very successful business person in this country. I'm Mm. on Dragon's Den. Mm. You know, I'm... uh, Yeah, a lot of people have a very high opinion of me as a business person. But when I look at like what I'm actually good at in business, it's not very much at all. And then I I started reading about this idea of skill stacking and looking at some of the world's greatest in their industries, whether it's Steve Jobs or it's Cristiano Ronaldo, and none of them are the, the best at anything. And people might go, well, well, what do you mean? Well, if you look at Cristiano Ronaldo, he's not the fastest player in the world. He's not the best header in the world. He's not the best striker in the world, the best defender in the world. He's not the best passer in the world. He's definitely not the best free kick or penalty taker in the world. But he is the best player in the world, according to many. And so how is that possible? And it's, it's kind of like a mathematical equation that if you are, if you are in the top 10% at six things in a village of a million people... Mathematically, you're actually the best in the village at those things combined. And the thing that really makes people genius in the world is when they have complementary and unique skills in their industry. So the reason why in my industry, and the reason why Gary Vaynerchuk in America are considered to be the rock star entrepreneurs of like our age or whatever, is because we both had a few unique and complementary skills In our skill stack, for me and Gary, that was, we were the entrepreneurs that weren't the most successful, weren't the richest, didn't have the biggest companies, but we both ran marketing agencies. Mm -hmm. And what that meant was in our skill stack, you had, we know how to use social media to extend our own voice. And the other part was public speaking, which me and Gary both have. Most CEOs, don 't know how to use social media to to build an audience of five million or in gary 's case twenty million people so although there 's better entrepreneurs, the ones that are held up as the rock stars have that in their skill stack mm.
0: they
1: 're not the best entrepreneurs, but they 're considered the best because of that one unique and complementary thing in their skill stack and I really reflect on that because you know in the u s it 's Gary over here, a lot of people will say that it 's like me or Ben Francis. And again, that's that's an incredibly important thing because I'm really bad at most things in business. My maths is bad. I can't spell. Operationally, I'm bad. But I have a few complementary things in my stack that I've really lent into. And those have defined me. Speaking, sales,
0: psychology. Yeah, it's all I've needed. It's a humble view, but it's also a very confident view. It's quite an interesting way of looking at it. I have to admit with my career and I've worked and met with some of the most interesting, successful people on the planet, yeah. The ones that were highly specialized and very good at one thing were almost the worst. I mean, they were very good at that Mm. one thing, but they really, really never could manage to manage the ever-changing life. And I think that's a very comforting message to, to a lot of people. It's You don't have to be number one at six things to be number one at all of them. You just have to be, you know, good enough at six things to be number one at all of them. I think that's a really, really interesting way.
1: I'd lean into the thing that makes you unique as well. You know, like I, I worked in Silicon Valley for a long time and the greatest entrepreneurs and most successful people in Silicon Valley aren't the ones that can code. They are the ones that can code and then have the unique and unexpected skill of all also being able to galvanize teams and speak publicly. So not only can they build great things and explain the technology, they have this really unexpected thing that you don't expect to see from people who sit behind computers writing lines of code, which is they can inspire people. Mm. That's in many cases what Steve Jobs was. He wasn't the best technically at all. That's what Steve Wozniak was there for. But what he had was he had in his skill stack vision, which he lent into, and he had art, which was again, who Very, that, what, yeah. what entrepreneur does a typography class? Yeah, And, you know, as I've been told by people that worked with him, he was the worst people manager. I got told- I by know
0: f- that for sure. Yeah,
1: they, they put him in his own building. I got told he got put in his own building and only people that could tolerate him could work in that building yeah. because he was so unbelievably bad at people management. Yeah. So, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's quite interesting, actually, that in my vision or my understanding, I never worked with, with Steve directly, but I worked with many, many people that did. He basically- was so good at some things that compensated for how bad he was. as And he spoke about that even uh, you know, later in his life and about the idea of he could have done things easier if you want. So we're now talking about my, we're gonna be recording my next book, uh, about my next book, That Little Voice in Your Head. So this is the publication week. And I call my brain Becky, as almost everyone knows me and Becky now as a pair. You call it the CEO. Hmm. I find that a very, very, very interesting uh, terminology. And you call it the lazy CEO. Yeah. But you're seem, you seem to be quite a brainiac. Like you really depend on that brain to make a lot of analysis and a lot of choices. What's that relationship like?
1: Yeah, you know, I've, I've had Professor Steve Peters on this podcast and he talked to me about the chimp. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what I was describing. It's the part of your brain that makes quick Decisions based on very little evidence, but it's doing it ultimately because its job is survival, yeah. as opposed to thriving. It wants you to survive, and you have to understand when that lazy CEO or that chimp in your brain is making those decisions in the modern world. Because in the modern world, most of the things we face aren't a risk to us to our lives, but but that part of our brain that helped us get here and that prolonged the lives of our ancestors long enough so that they could have kids and they could have kids and then they could have me, is still at work every single day. And it's still trying to understand threats, risks, and um, and how to stay connected to my tribe to help me to reproduce myself. And it has all of these mechanisms it uses. And some of them are, we talk about fight or flight, but things like rejection even. Rejection is quite clearly a signal that the lazy seer in my mind is using to tell me that I'm at risk of being ostracized from my tribe. And if that happened back in the day, your brain would fall into this state of psychological withdrawal. You'd fall into isolation. You'd live longer. They call it self-preservation. And eventually my chance of death would be really high. So rejection is this tool to tell me to change my behavior to get back to my tribe. And it's the same as what I talked about earlier when I said about, I thought I was inferior because of the context I saw myself in. The lazy seer in your brain will see three TVs on a shelf in an electronic store, and it will assume that the cheap one is not good and the expensive one is too fancy and it'll pick the middle one. And it's using context to attribute value. Same with menus on restaurants. They've done these tests a million times. If you put a really expensive steak, a Wagyu, A5, whatever, then you put a medium one and then you put a bottom steak, no one picks the bottom one. And nobody
0: picks the top one No one do pick the top one. Yeah,
1: They pick the middle one. That changes when you remove either the bottom one or the top one. Mm. So the, the CEO in your brain is, is making these um, snap decisions based on context to help you to survive. And that can be a, a curse in the modern world when our context is so big. Mm. Our context is billions of people and th- thousands of signals every second of every day. So you have to be aware of it
0: and how it's making its decisions. Which takes me to the most confusing part about you, because... You're very a very serious marketeer. You know what you're doing. You're a social media sensation. And yet you're reasonably, no, actually quite genuine, which in an interesting way got me to sit down and... Consider. I mean, I have an issue with social media, and it's it's clear because I, you know, I don't invest much in it. I feel it's a little bit fake. And like you rightly said, you know, I'm one of those CEOs, if you want, that are not really using that skill in their skill stack. Okay, and the reason I say that to myself is like, yeah, it's not real. You know, I prefer to be in person in front of people and so on and so forth. But the truth is, I'm lying to myself. I should probably put a lot more effort in my social media and do it better. You, on the other hand, are quite you. Like, you know, people who know you like I do personally will say, yeah, that's actually him. No fake stuff, no exaggerated anything, no pictures, filters or whatever. Is that possible at all in the world we live in today to actually be genuine and reach millions at the same time?
1: Yeah, I mean, so you said earlier, you said, um, I should probably be doing more social media. And the question my brain asked is, why? Why do you feel that you should be doing more?
0: Well, I, the way I'm, my mathematical brain looks at it is simple. It's basically, if you write a good message that can change the life of 100,000 people in a book, it might change the life of a million people in a reel, right? And I don't think it's a secret. My ego goes like, no, but reels are for kids, I need to be with the people that will focus, right? Mm. The truth is that's not true at all. Reels are actually very effective if you do them effectively. If I stand in front of a camera and dance, uh, you know, and point at things, I'm sure that reel won't go far anyway, but, but you know, it's not what I stand for. But if I have a good message that's on a reel, I think it will actually make a big difference to the world.
1: Yeah. So you feel like you should be using social media because you've got this mission which you feel could be extended by the use of this tool. And that's really like my view of social media now in my life. It's why you don't see me posting luxuries or holiday pictures or anything like mm. that or what I've, the steak I've eaten or, you know, the wonderful parts of my life because social media for me is just a tool which is now solely focused on this mission that I have. Which what? It's a good question. I think my mission is a very selfish one, but it helps... So I guess it's not selfish because a pillar, you know, the whole ikigai thing, the Japanese talk about finding something that remunerates you sufficiently, that you're good at, that can serve others and that you kind of enjoy. I think that's part of the the little quad. That's where I find myself is, Mm. the thing that I found most fulfilling in my life was producing content, doing my podcasts, doing my shows and those kinds of things. That was just, again, going back to the feeling. That's what makes me feel the best. And it turns out it helps a lot of other people as well. So that's what I do. Every day, I when I post stuff on social media, when you see videos, when I do my podcast, when I do my shows, when I write my books, it's a selfish thing. Um, it makes me feel the best, and it helps other people. That is really at the heart of my mission. Is to like if I was to try and summarize my mission into like some a sentence, which is kind of disingenuous because that's mm, not I'm not actually doing it for the sentence, mm. but the consequence of the the selfish pursuit of making myself feel good every day would be, I'm helping to liberate people from some of the thoughts and ideas that make their life less fulfilling. That you suffered from. Yeah, that I suffered from, but that's actually not why I'm doing it. That's what I say if if someone asks me in a PR interview, whatever, like for some- No, but it
0: shows across the fabric of everything I've observed about you. It's, you're basically constantly telling the world, I looked inwards, I reflected, And I sucked at this. I've Mm. learned something. Okay. And I don't want you to suffer the process I had to go through to learn it. So I, I might as well share it with you. You're always, I mean, again, one of the things I love about this book is how personal it is. And you either talk about something you really messed up at or something that is very unique to you. Like, for example, your strategy of quitting. I thought that was really eye-opening, right? But you're basically saying, look, you know, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but this is my how my, wo- my brain works. Maybe you can use it too, okay? It's- yeah, I just, when you were saying that, I realised something, which is, I'm like, of all the people I know, if one of my
1: friends or someone around me, or even when I get these DMs, if someone has a challenge in their life or something that they're stuck on, like I was talking about my security guard and his relationships, or mm. my hairdresser and his relationships, or even like with my assistant, Sophie, I I just wanna- Want to solve it. Solve it. <laughs> I know. To my detriment. I know that feeling. T- yeah. t- to my detriment. Like it's a beautiful it just, thing. I honestly sat here for, I think somewhere between two and three hours talking to my security guard about his life. Yeah. Like, And I don't know what that is in me because it's not always a good thing. Because central to that pursuit of trying to solve it for someone else is this really difficult thing, which is thinking you know what's best for them. Mm which
0: I don't think is a great place to be. It's not at all, no. You know what I mean? And then, But, but wanting them to know what you know so that they can make yeah, that's more not... informed reasoning is a good thing, isn't
1: it? Yeah, it's a balancing act between trying to like live someone else's life for them and thinking you know what's best for them and trying to offer them something you've learned in the hope that it might help them to make better decisions for themselves. Sometimes I'm not good at the balance because I'm very intense. And that's also, and that maybe... I was saying that because that's also at the heart of why i do this podcast a lot of the time is there's things i've come to learn that i know kids out there that are going to make mistakes Mm. and those mistakes will cost them time and happiness Mm. and i I would rather they didn't make those mistakes i'd rather they take it from me so yeah
0: i guess that's a bit of a motivator in my life too yeah do you believe in anything bigger than this life like you know if i spoke about this to my coach in the netherlands for example sonia she would say look you've lived many, many lives, and you're coming back with the mission of helping others, right? And I'd love to believe that. I don't know if I can. What's your stand on this?
1: Do I believe in anything bigger than this life? My brain shouted back, what could possibly be bigger than this life? Hmm. It would be something that I didn't know. But for me, I don't know what could be bigger than this life. This life is huge. It's big enough. It's just, it's everything in... And more and too much it 's everything so i don't i don 't feel like I need to believe in anything bigger than this life. This for me is like this can be heaven mm. can also unfortunately be hell it, it can yeah, but that maybe 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 this is it and i and that is enough for me. There was a point up until I was eighteen where I was deeply religious mm. and I analyzed why I was so religious and so immersed in superstition, and it wasn 't for good reasons, mm. it was fear. It was uncertainty. It was not being comfortable with the unknown. And it's funny because when I... And there's this other thing in me, which was I think humans generally are... Their ego or something in them convinces them that we are much more special than we actually need
0: to be. <laughs> I love that observation, yes. Do you see what I mean? And this yeah. is also
1: why we we indulge in materialism and we over-concern about what Becky or Jenny said about my hair. All of these things seem to be a consequence of overestimating your own importance. Mm. And I think the best, most peaceful way to live your life is to actually fundamentally believe that you're not a divine being and you're, you don't need, you don't want or need to be mm. and that you are both important and totally unimportant at the same time if it's possible to believe two, two conflicting ideas that I genuinely believe. I believe that I can have huge, tremendous impact on this life and that it matters, the impact I can have. But also that once I'm gone, that's okay. And that my impact and whatever else can live on this earth in whatever way I manifested it. I'm actually really excited about the idea of not lasting forever. Mm. I wasn't when I was religious. I'm, I'm really excited. The, 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 it makes this all so special, doesn't it? It makes this time I have here so much more special to know that every decision I make comes at the consequence of another that I can't make because I don't have the time. And I think when we remove scarcity from anything in our lives, we remove specialness. So this Mm -hmm. life is special because I'm here for, let's hope, maybe until I'm 40, maybe till I'm 90. But every decision I'm making, what I drink, how I spend my time, I talk about it a lot in the book, how I allocate those chips of my time is at the direct consequence of something else because my time is finite that is wonderful. It's the most amazing thing ever. And, you know, I used to fear death, death when I thought that I would go to some unknown place based on the judgment of someone or something. But when I heard Ricky Gervais say, how did you feel 100 years ago? Nothing. That was peace. I didn't feel anything. It was, it wasn't painful. It wasn't suffering. It wasn't anything. And he goes, well, that's how you feel in 100 years time. And there's this wonderful experience within it. And that, that is all the evidence I have. And it's enough for me. It's totally enough for me. Maybe, maybe part of the reason I'm so at peace with all of this this stuff and the idea of my own death and all of those things, is because I know that every single day I've done it, I've followed that signal of how I feel. So there is no regret. And I think about this every time I turn one year older, I think I don't care about getting old because I feel like
0: every year I've done it. I've done it. I've followed myself. I've pursued myself. It's a different life, yeah. Well, I have to say this takes me to my absolute favorite chapter in this book. You called it the casino of life, chapter 19. The analogy of having certain chips that we come to the world with a certain number of hours. Mm. I think that's magnificent. It's it's such an amazing learning and that you're gambling them all the time. What does that mean to you? Yeah, so I mean, the
1: interesting thing that I... I reflect on, especially understanding your story, is we never get to see how big the chip stack is. Mm. Which is another factor which I probably should have expressed more in the book. I think in the book I say, you know, if we live until this age, which is the average life expectancy, we'll have X hundred thousand amount of chips. It's like three, four hundred thousand chips. These chips are equivalent to the amount of hours we have in our our life. And we wake up in the morning, we get 24 chips, which is 24 hours in a day. We've already spent nine of them usually or eight of them sleeping. So we're left with maybe 16 or so chips there. And then we have a choice where we're going to place them on the roulette table of life. Are we going to put two on connections with my friends and family? Am I going to put six on work? Am I going to put three on this thing here? One walking my dog and being out in nature. And this kind of metaphorical roulette wheel spins every day, it's spinning all the time and it's showing you the returns on how you placed your chips and that's really deciding your life. It's the, the fundamental lesson here is that the only thing within our control and the center point of our influence, irrefutably, is just how we place these chips. It's just how we use our time. There is actually not, no other currency we have in our lives. It's just the use of these chips we get every day. So when I, when I look at my schedule or my calendar, I'm getting it more and more these days when there's more demands for my chips is to be unbelievably focused and value orientated in the placement of your chips. That means that when you look at all the things you said you'd do because you want to please someone but you don't really want to do and you understand the return on that on that bet isn't going to be fulfilling or enriching, you have to be a better better at saying no and better at defending your boundaries. I actually went through my calendar yesterday and I did this exercise where I relook at how I've said I'll use my time. And I just go down there and I just click no on everything on Google Calendar. Mm. No, 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 no. So my circumstances change. I'm a little bit more busy. I don't want to do these things. And if it disappoints someone, honestly, I don't care. Mm. Because I am the guardian of my happiness. I am the, the my number one priority every single day isn't others It goes back to the old analogy of the oxygen masks on the plane. My number one priority every day is myself. Secondary to that, providing I've achieved that objective of taking care of self, of enriching self, then I'll have so much to give to others. But if you get that balance wrong and you people please and you don't have boundaries, you will collapse and have nothing to give to others. You'll fall into depression, anxiety. So... I go through my calendar, I go through my life, I look at how I'm allocating my chips and I make sure that the return on them is in line with my values and my fulfillment as I know it to be now.
0: And if it's not, then I have to take those chips back and place them elsewhere, so. So interesting. When I read this, you know, what came to my mind was that we're actually born millionaires and then we become poorer and poorer over life. You're born with, if I I remember your calculation correctly, which was 500,000 active hours Mm -hmm. if you live to be 80. So there you go. You start life with half a million of those, and then you start wasting them. You start, yeah. you know, and the question is, you know, if you put two of them on swiping on Instagram, was that the better use for them? And by the way, what did you exchange that for? Maybe if you put those two behind insecurity. Yeah. Right.
1: You know, that's like a really badly placed chip, isn't it? Because Absolutely. you, you use two of your chips and what you got back was feelings of insecurity, yeah. negative comparison, and you feel like, now and you now need to go spend three chips getting surgery (laughs) or your hair done Uh which is going to cost you even more it's a really bad placement of your chips Mm. and i love what you said there because it made me think something else when you said we're born millionaires i thought about a kid running around he wakes up in the morning with his 16 chips that he's got left and he just runs through the world doing whatever like he wants. play out in the garden i'll go connect with my friend i'll go pick this thing up and try and bite it and chew it and then bent like that is someone that's placing their chips with a certain sense of Intuition and self self autonomy that we can only be jealous of, then we become adults and we we've given up choice about how our chips are placed. So we end up going to jobs we hate, going yes. to networking events that we think we have to be at, go see the in
0: laws that I hate, and swan around <laughs> their barbecue for yeah. six hours. Well, I mean, to start, I'm, I'm very grateful for the two chips you've given me. So thank you for oh, that. Oh no, but really, yeah, <laughs> uh, but, but, I, but but that actually really really leads me to my last two questions, and then I'll give you back the rest of your chips. As I got older, Stephen, I felt that perhaps the best to places to put those chips on is to play, which is to live, really, and to love. And I find, once again, as I stalk you, that you're it, right? Millionaire in your 20s, fit, handsome, funny, smart. Thank you. Yeah, if I was um, gay, I would date you for sure, okay? <laughs> uh, but you have honestly, the opportunity to be with any woman you want. And yet you speak about love so preciously. You really, really, really love love. You want to have one person in your life. You want to have that deep connection and you you go out of your way to make it work. That puzzles me a tiny bit. Again, compared to all of my rich and famous friends, you seem to have made a very different choice. So. Where is it coming from? What is it giving you? What are you doing there?
1: It goes back to a lot of how a lot of my beliefs are formed. Pretty much all of my beliefs have been formed by evidence. Sometimes the evidence is wrong. Sometimes it's right. But, you know, all of our beliefs are centered on evidence. So And that's a very subjective form of evidence. So something I've experienced has led me to believe that the correct answer is X. And I I hold that to be true. And so my evidence is I went out there and I tried the opposite. I tried being with multiple partners, having multiple girlfriends, tried dating and all of those things. And when I weigh that up in terms of the fulfillment I got back as a dividend from that choice, it doesn't compare to... The fulfillment and the sense of home and foundation you can get from being with one person and committing to them. and it's it's you know it's something I've definitely battled with because going back to the idea of scales, it's not a bite it's not a thing where today I no longer think about other women, or I don't have a glance at some point at a beautiful woman or whatever. That's not reality. Of course that still happens, but I have on that side of the scales, the evidence clearly tells me that that is not going to get me what I'm looking for from my life, which is that, in, that really intrinsic, deep sense of fulfillment. So I'm able to every day make the correct decision, which is in line with my values and in line with my fulfillment. And that's it. And I also know that this is a very binary decision. Like you can't have both You can't have both. You can't, if you want a a committed relationship, it comes at the expense of running around, being single, dating people, going to nightclubs, partying and being reckless. You can only have one. So, and again, this is what makes life special. In fact, this is actually what makes relationships really special is because they come at the expense of something else. Like having a six pack comes at the expense of waffles every day. I I love waffles. I love that example. You know, but, but I have to choose. Once, and it's, and it's in fact the choice. If there was no choice, there would be no specialness. So I used no, to. No, I, hold
0: on. Don't, don't don't rush through this because this is one of my favorite things I've ever learned from you. So so that I you know the idea for our listeners again from Stephen's book is the reason why a six pack is valuable is because it requires sacrifice, right? Yeah, it's a the, story. the way we value things in our modern world. You know the, the reason why a Louis Vuitton bag appears to be something that everyone wants to have is because people will know that you paid a few thousand pounds for it, right? Yeah, exactly. And so there is a value behind something, and now what you're saying is that the value of commitment is a feeling of home is that you know you 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 sacrifice all of the partying and fun yeah it's
1: everything that you invested to have that relationship is the specialness of it all the things you had to say no to and the analogy i talk about in my book was something i stumbled across in my research which was jugglers I love that example. Yeah, it's been 14. 14 balls, yeah. So yeah. the scientists have are pretty sure that the maximum amount of balls that a human being can juggle is 14 balls because of gravity, the size of the human hands, how the balls form. No one's ever been able to juggle more than 14 balls ever in the history of time. And so that, that for me is an analogy of the 14 balls you pick in your life come at the expense of all the other balls you could have possibly picked up. And that's what makes those 14 balls valuable and maybe in our lives as well it's a series of binary choices that we have to make but because there are so many other things we could have picked up there are so many other girls i could have dated or there's so many other parties i could have gone to there's so much other sex i could have had the choice to just pick this one is inherently what makes that one that relationship with my girlfriend so unbelievably special it's the decision we've both made because I'm sure she could have been with a lot of people as well, to be with each other. That makes it so special and so worth fighting for. And there is, like, I had to also get rid of this idea of, like, yeah, of having the best of both worlds, which is, like, really shitty advice. Because as it relates to, like, being in shape, like, as I said in the book, I love waffles. I, I just, if I could eat waffles every single day and have a six-pack, I would. But then two things would happen. The six-pack in a world where that was possible, would have no value. That's true. The the six pack attributes its value because of all the the sacrifice and hard work and investment it takes. And also- The waffles would be boring. I wouldn't like waffles anymore. (laughs) Yes. And I think it's that realisation that made me, that, that was made it very clear in my mind that you don't actually want the best of both worlds. It's both impossible and you don't ever strive to have the best of both worlds. Make a decision and rest peacefully in the wisdom that it was in fact the need to make a decision that made the thing you've chosen so special, Ultimately. Yeah. That helped me. It really liberated me. It really liberated me from this desire to try and always have the best of both worlds. And we all try that too much in our lives. And we end up, as I said, you you hurt both. So, And I was never that guy. I was always the guy that wanted the best of both worlds. Yeah, and in that, that this case, it would mean having a girlfriend and cheating. Mm. But you just can't. You'll have neither. Mm. So honestly has really deeply helped me
0: i'll send her this clip because (laughs) i think think it's really important that she knows how lucky she is Um, i'm lucky i'm more lucky than she is oh come on he's uh, he's improving the clip even further it's like this is the best the oh my god the best love story ever i want to ask then i close this our conversation with this what if my choice is to play I've been seriously, seriously. So my, one of my of the largest areas of contemplation in my life is my work on the idea of being half monk. Yeah. Uh, so half half of my life is not in the modern world, engaged in you know what. Even if even though what I do is wonderful and it's helping so many people, but really is more in reflection and fun and play and so, and so on and service, by the way. And a big part. I mean, I had the the joy of spending an hour and a half with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and I say that with the utmost respect, he's a kid. Like he's such so playful, so cheerful, so fun to be around, even though he's a prominent leader, right? And I think that is quite eye opening. I think we fail to play somehow, as you and I rush from place to place and do so many things and record and write and achieve and speak. What's that in your life?
1: What do you mean by play? Do you mean, please be specific about like, because I want to make sure that I'm answering this question
0: properly. Playing is exactly what you mentioned about that child, which is allocating 17 of your chips to something that has no return expected at all. Flowing with the game, being competitive, being silly.
1: I, my brain goes, well, it does have a return then. There is an ROI from that. And there is an ROI from solitude, from walking from playing video games society oh yeah yeah. say that again about video games (laughs) society has maybe conditioned us to believe that the story of unscheduled time or unstructured time is that you are lazy or you're wasteful but i don't believe that's true i think that's a consequence of a society that rewards productivity Mm -hmm. and like busyness for the sake of busyness and total optimization of every minute of every day but part of like i think a responsible and value and fulfillment orientated way to place your chips is to allocate time to nothingness. So like when I got in the car last night from filming Dragon's Den, because I've been filming from like 6, 7am in the morning till 11 to midnight every single day for the last four days, my schedule and my workload just piles. I'm in the middle of this huge fundraise for a company we have in San Francisco, Flight Story my other companies is making some really significant moves. Then I've got all my other podcasts, all these other obligations. My team want me for a lot of things that I have to answer. My decision in that moment was to get in the car. Wow. I have a four hour drive. I looked at my laptop and then, and I looked at my no. desk <laughs> and I was, I was going to just, I, I genuinely, I remember the moment, Steve, you've got so much work that you have to do. So much work that you have to do, but you don't feel like doing any of it. Because you've, you've been working for three days in a row. So I turned on the PlayStation 5 and I just played online, play FIFA. I've not done that in, a, in months. But again, it was listening to my body and my body wanted to just play FIFA and it wanted to lie down and relax. So I'm so good and so aggressive with that, with just saying, I'm going to do either play PlayStation or do nothing for this day, for these five hours, for this time. You can't measure the return in terms of revenue or productivity. But I believe in it because it's what my body wanted to do. And that is the greatest signal and measurement of how, you know, the allocation of my chips. So this is funny because this kind of, it debunks the narrative of people like me, that we are just like this obsessively hardworking group of people. No, like I listen to my body. I listen to my body above all else. My team will know that if I don't want to do something, I'll just, I don't want to do it. Mm. I'll cancel something mm. with 10 minutes to go. I'll say, I oh, know I'm not doing oh, it. Oh man, away. you're
0: so tough to manage. Like what's going yeah, on? But
1: but this is not a sprint here. Mm-hmm. This is life. So I have to go for potentially 50 years. And like, I do not buy into the idea that I'm just busy this week and I just need to get past this week. Where I'm, that's what people tell themselves. I'm just, it, this is just a very busy week. The busy month. No, no, you have to find a sustainable way to exist and to, to thrive. Mm. So when I look at sustainability, that means that I'm going to have to be as diligent with time off and nothingness and just i'll lay here and pl- learn how to dj or do whatever i want and also with my work commitments mm. i think i get that balance fairly well to be honest and i know it's frustrating to people that work with me because sometimes i can be a bottleneck for them but honestly if i don't do it the long-term adverse consequence be is a bit, a i will bottleneck. be depressed i will be an ar- i will be lost i won't have you know You won't want that person. Yeah.
0: So. Yeah. Yeah. You call it going back to human? Is that how you called it? Yeah. The journey back to human. The journey back to human. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think was the most beautiful part of what you speak about, which is the idea of I need more than all the modern world is telling me.
1: Yeah. It was this realization I had in my life that all of the cures that we seem to be prescribing to people to help them overcome their modern disorders mental health disorders or struggles actually seem to be in a sentence just be a bit more human mm. and what do i mean by human just reflect on what we were 10000 years ago when we lived in small tribes with a very small context we lived in nature if we wanted to eat we had to do exercise we we exercised naturally because it was the only way to move around mm. we had we ate things that grew in the ground and ran on legs we drank a lot of water Instead of sugar, hmm. so when I think, and we had a lot of time um, of stillness in the nature. And if you look at the, the how people lived in those days, it's everything we prescribe to help cure ourselves today. So I think at some point in our technological and industrial revolution we took a wrong turning and we started to prioritize the wrong thing and it's funny meditation eat better exercise more connect with your friends even things like buying a pet these are all things that are just inherently human so it's funny because it's quite a controversial idea that we can cure most of the pain in our lives just by being a little bit more human and um and again, I, I love that because it's not complex. It's not something you have to be prescribed by a doctor. It's not some seventeen tricks and tips to overcome your anxiety <laughs> it's just it's just a case of being who you're actually designed psychologically to be. and so yeah, like that's always the answer for me when I'm feeling you're getting those signals, some of those signals are anxiety or you know you might get depressive symptoms or other feelings of emptiness. You can view those as just a, a calling from your your body to get back to your tribe and get back to being more human. For me, that might mean go to Indonesia and spend time with my girlfriend in nature, which is where I wrote, wrote the book, or go and play football with my friends down the park or call my family. And those always seem to be the cure, or just you know spend some time listening to my music or go out to the park or play with my dog. The simplest things tend to be the cure for the most complex things. And I love that about life because I always love when things are simple and they're not complicated. And I think most of life is simple and not complicated, but we complicate it in an attempt to either sell people things, because no one's going to buy something if it's just that simple, or because we assume a complex problem must have a complex solution, which again is tends to not be the case. And I have this like deep belief that we're not bro- born broken. Not at all. We live in a society which is potentially broken and is telling us to live in a way that is that would make us feel broken. But I but I really believe it's the same with my dog, you know, thousands of years of evolution and my ancestors one by one have been sculpted by evolution and natural selection and the 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 conditions of what it is to be human to to be here. I have full faith that I have everything I need in within me to be happy and fulfilled. So, it's just about tuning into that and listening intently to the signals of my body when they speak to me and believing in them.
0: So oh, it's my turn now to uh, say to everyone listening that this definitely has been my favorite conversation on slow-mo so far. Oh, you're so kind. I struggle because I don't have many people to teach me. And this young, wise sage over there just constantly teaches me. It's just an incredible experience to be in your presence, Stephen. I think it's a uh, it's a joy, it's uh an honor to be a good friend and I think your reflection on yourself is definitely working for quite a few of us. And your way of summing things up, man, summing them up in the real format. I find that quite amazing. Uh for all of you listening, I uh, hope you enjoyed this. I uh, know I don't think you could have enjoyed this as much as I did. I'm fanboying here <laughs> and, you know, sitting with someone I really admire truly, truly a pleasure for me. I hope you enjoyed it too. If you have, tell others about it, because I think it's definitely a conversation uh, worth spreading. And uh, yeah, at the end of it all, I think the answer truly is to actually go back to being human, which is what I constantly repeat to you at the end of every podcast. Regardless of how busy you are today, there's always a tiny bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening. I love you, Stephen, for coming on board, and I will see you next time.